Uh, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, as we make our way, continuing through the book of Mark. As you're making your way there, let me uh, just tell you about a story recently in the news about a would-be robber taken to the emergency room after suffering extensive wounds in an attempted home invasion. Uh, The guy uh, cut the power to the house, broke out the uh, basement window, crawled there in through the basement, uh, and uh, promptly heard a a rather startled, afraid uh, elderly woman's voice Uh, And uh, she said this, uh, Jesus sees you, now get out. (laughs) Ignoring the woman's voice and proceeding straight up those basement stairs towards her, uh, the man heard the woman exclaim, Sick him, Jesus! And her 80-pound Doberman pincher attacked the man and brutally, viciously tore him to shreds. The police arrived with him screaming, Uh, Get off me, Jesus. Get off me, Jesus. (laughs) Do you know what that man's problem was? He didn't know who Jesus was. That was his problem. He didn't know who Jesus was, and he's not alone. In Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, Jesus asked his disciples a couple of questions, very important. First of all, he said, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he asked them the second question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? This is the question that Jesus asked his disciples. And it's the question that he asks each and every one of us here today. Who do you say that I am? How we answer that question is not a matter of of what we articulate verbally. It's a matter of how we live our lives. We can talk is cheap. We can say whatever we want. But who you say that Jesus is, who I say that Jesus is, is a matter of how I live my life. And that's exactly what we're going to look at today in Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 14 or chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, as we see three things that keep us from knowing who Jesus is. Mark 6, 14. Now King Herod heard of him, that is Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. And others said, it's Elijah. And others said it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard it, he said, This is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod on his birthday gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, 
and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he also swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I'll give to you up to half of my kingdom. And so she went out and she said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately the king sent in an an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head out on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and they took away his corpse. and They laid it in a tomb. As I said, we see three types of people in our text this morning. They all share one thing in common. They don't know Jesus. And the Apostle Paul said that knowing Jesus is one of the most, it's the most important thing in life. Listen to his words in Philippians 3, 7 through 10. He said this, The things which were gained to me I count as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, listen, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Today I want to focus in our text on three things that keep us from knowing Jesus. Three things in our lives that keep us from knowing Jesus. We're going to see Herod, who didn't know Jesus because he feared man. We're going to look at the crowd who didn't know Jesus because they rejected God's plan. And we're going to look at Herodias, who didn't know Jesus because she despised the truth. So let's start, we'll look at Herod, who didn't know Jesus because he feared man. We read there in verse 14 that uh, King Herod heard of Jesus, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now, that's not an original thought for Herod. There we go. That's not an original thought for Herod. He, he did not know that, that this had happened in and of himself. He had heard it from other people. Uh, Luke's gospel tells us that. Luke 9, 7 says this, Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by Jesus, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead. That's a significant observation. Because Herod's reaction to Jesus here today in our text, it's the same reaction that uh, he uh, had been, his, his reaction to John. He filtered it, his response, through other people. Through what other people said, through what other people thought. In other words, Herod was more interested, more worried about, more concerned about what people said, thought, uh, and, and felt than he was about what God said, about what God thought, about what God felt. Uh, look again, verses 15 through 20, and we see some, some really interesting things here with Herod. It says, um, as people are making the observation, uh, 
that others said it's Elijah, others said it's the prophet, or like one of the prophets. Uh, but when Herod heard, he said, this is John whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Uh, and uh, he, he, his, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. See, what we're seeing there uh, is, is that, that Herod had this concern for what other people would say, and we see it modeled in his behavior with his, with his wife. Now, let me be really careful with what I'm about to say. Ladies, give me grace. Uh, be gentle with me. But guys, I want to talk to you for a minute. Men, sometimes we miss Jesus and his will for our life, his will for our marriage, his will for our family because of this. Because we're more concerned with pleasing our wives than we are with pleasing the Lord. And we see that with, with, uh, with Herod here. The reason that he, that he relented and threw John the Baptist into prison was because he was more concerned with what his wife felt and thought than he was with the actions that he felt led to take. Now, let me illustrate kind of this principle with, with a story. I've been a pastor for about 17 years, 18 years, 18 years. And, and over the course of 18 years, I've had the opportunity to counsel many people. And, and one of the things that is a recurring theme in, in my marriage counseling is finances, dealing with people with finances uh, regularly. And, and I see this modeled on, on a fairly regular basis that men are characterized at making bad financial decisions because they want to give their wives the things that they want. I had one particular situation where a guy was, they, they were in bad financial shape and the straw that broke the camel's back, the thing that pushed them over the edge was a car that the man had purchased. And why do you think he bought the car? Because his wife couldn't live without it. She wanted this car, it was awesome. And he wanted to give it to her. But he knew it was a mistake and yet he, he made a train wreck financial decision because he wanted to give his wife what she wanted. Now ladies, in your defense, more often than not, you don't want your husband to make bad financial decisions to give you what you want. But, you, you know, you would want your husband to be able to say, hey, we can't, can't afford that. Now, you may not like that, but you would prefer that, that that's the way your husband would lead. But guys, we don't do that, do we? We want to give our wives what, what they want. And so sometimes we'll listen to them when the Lord is speaking to us in a way that's contrary, in a way that, that just... That, you know, no, the best thing for my wife is for me to say, no, we can't afford that. Now, that might break her heart. She may not appreciate that. But in the long run, she will. She wants you to be able to, to take care of her. And we, we covered this a, a few weeks ago, and, and, and I'll just touch on it for the sake of the, of the, the point. As you go through uh, the book of Genesis, and, and you see the fall of man, and then you read in Genesis chapter 3 the curse that's associated with the fall of man, you see what the lot of life for women is and the lot of life for men is, what, what our curse is, what, what is the result of our sinful nature. 
And for women, it makes it very clear. The, the Lord talks about the pain in childbirth. And, and then he goes on to say that, that your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Now, guys hear that, and they're like, cool, my wife will desire me. It ain't that kind of desiring. That's not what we're talking about. When it says that her desire will be for you, what it means is her desire to, to, to rule over you. That's, that's the desire. That's the, the, lot, of, of, of the, the lot of life that, that all women carry uh, as a result of the fall. And, and so you've got this dichotomy, ladies, within you, because the other half of you wants your husband to, to be your knight in shining armor, to love you, to care for you, to nurture you. You want to be able to say, you know, be, be large and in charge and, and, and take care of me. But at the same time, you've got that other part of you that wants to rule over him. Now, guys, are the part of our fallen nature, of our sinful nature, that plays right into this, the Bible basically says that the curse for you is that ain't nothing coming easy. You got to work hard and you got to work the ground and it's by thorns and thistles that you're going to eat the fruit of your labors and it's just the sweat of your brow. And so when you come home at the end of the day and your wife wants to rule over you, your sinful nature says, hey, one less thing. Cool, okay? And so you just sort of, you, it, it's the path of least resistance. And so that, that the sinful nature, your wife's sinful nature, your sinful nature working together causes us to go in this direction and just sort of try and take the path of least resistance. Hey, what mama wants, mama gets. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. I just, I'll just get it for her. And, and so what ends up happening is we make decisions that, that are consequential to us. It's exactly what we see in Herod's life here. Herod makes a decision that he doesn't want to make and he makes it for his wife's benefit and ultimately, it leads to trouble for Herod. Now, we see something else in Herod's life, some, some, uh, another thing here that, that, that prevents him from seeing Jesus, from knowing Jesus clearly in his fear of men. Not only does he fear his wife, but he fears, he fears men. He fears the people that are uh, around him. Uh, take a look at, at verse 20 in our text. It says, Herod feared John knowing that he was a just and a holy man, and he protected him. We see further down when after Salome, uh, uh, Herodias' daughter, does the dance for him, and, and he's sad that you know she suckers him into this thing, uh, says that uh, he didn't want to, uh, he was exceedingly sorry in verse 26, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. He was afraid of man. He was fearful of man. Now, you know, don't get the wrong idea about, about Herod when it says that in verse 20 that he feared John knowing that he was a just and a holy man. This is not to say that Herod, you know, respected John and thought that John was great. That's not what it was. As a matter of fact, if you read in Matthew's gospel, it sheds better light on what the motive of his heart was. Matthew 14, 5, listen, it says, although Herod wanted to put John to death, that's what he wanted, Although he wanted to put John to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. In other words, Herod was afraid of the men that he would make angry if he put John to death. That was his motive. He feared men. He was mindful of what men would say. Proverbs 29, 25 says this, that the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be safe. Listen, anytime that we make decisions in order to please other people, 
we risk offending God in the process. We see this right now in a lot of churches. It's really popular in a lot of churches right now to be welcoming of, of all faiths. You see, you know, this, this uh, uh, bumper sticker that, that's on a lot of cars that says coexist. You seen that? And it's got all these different religious symbols to make up the letters of, of coexist. And so, and that's really in vogue right now. It's real popular to say, oh, hey, at the risk of not offending anybody, let's just, just come on in. Let's just come on all together and, and we'll take some of your religious, you know, ceremonial stuff and we'll incorporate it here and we'll take some of your beliefs and we'll put it in here. And, and in the name of not offending anybody, what we've done in the process is we've offended God. God has a standard, he has a will, and he has a purpose. And whenever we fear men, the Bible says it's a snare. And we risk offending the one who created us, the one who gave us life. Whenever we fear men, we make decisions that are bad for us in the long run. I heard the story, it's an old fable about uh, an old man and a, a young boy and a donkey. Sounds like a joke, right? An old man, a young boy, and a donkey. Uh, and they come riding into town. Uh, and this old man is walking, and the young boy is sitting on a donkey, and the old man is leading the donkey. And as they come into the town, um, they're the object of scorn and ridicule. And everybody's hassling the little kid, and they tell him, you know, oh, you're not respecting your elders. How dare you ride on that donkey and make him walk like that? And so when they're entering into the next town, the young boy gets off the donkey and the old man gets on the donkey and they go walking into the next town and they're meet with, met with scorn and ridicule. And the people say to the old man, how dare you make that young boy walk like that while you ride up on that, that donkey. And so sure enough, they go into the next town and the young boy and the man are, are walking and the man's carrying the donkey as they go walking into town. You know, all for the sake of trying to, to please other people. And that's, that's what happens in our life when we try to live our lives to please other people. Have you realized you can't please everybody? You're, I don't care what you do. You're always going to make somebody mad. It amazes me in ministry over the years how many emails I get from people that are angry with me. For whatever, and I, you can't please them. It's, you just can't win for losing. You know, and it, either I, you're, you, you tell too many jokes. You don't tell enough jokes. Oh, you, you, you went and you weren't there when I, when I called. Or what, what are you doing there? Why, why aren't you off doing something else? Or whatever. You know, it doesn't matter. People, you just can't please everybody all the time. I learned a long time ago, the way that we have to live our lives is we have to seek first to please the Lord. Right? Doesn't that what Matthew 6.33 says? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you as well. And so, so here we have Herod, a guy who didn't know Jesus because he sought to please everybody else. And in the end, he pleased, every other, he pleased the other people, but he didn't please Jesus. Well, we also see in addition to the fear of men, another thing that keeps us from knowing God in our text, and, and that's the rejecting of God's plan. When we reject God's plan, we missed Jesus. And we see that with the crowd. According to verses 14 and 15 here, 
that many people, most of the people, thought that Jesus was either John the Baptist or that he was Elijah or that he was one of the prophets. Uh, According to the disciples' own testimony, Matthew 16, we read it at the beginning. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? Some say you're Elijah, some say you're one of the prophets, you know. And and so this was the people's observation. This is what they thought, perceived Jesus to be. There's good reason for that. Some people thought that Jesus was Elijah because it was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, that Elijah would come before the Messiah. And we know that that was fulfilled in who? Who's a Bible scholar can, can answer that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who fulfilled that, but they didn't recognize that. They didn't see that. Others thought that he, the, 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 that Jesus was the prophet that Moses said would come after him. And you read about it in Deuteronomy 18, 15. And ironically, uh, uh, Jesus was that prophet that, that, that was ironically, uh, who the text is speaking of, but they didn't recognize him as their Messiah. And there's a good reason for that. Turn, um, turn to Acts chapter one. We're talking about this idea that, that the people, they, they just, they, they were tripped up. They couldn't really see Jesus for who he was because they, they rejected God's plan. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, pick it up in context. You know, Jesus had told his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my father promised. And so they're there. They're waiting. Verse 6, therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, they're speaking to Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, verse 7, It's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You guys recall we went through that. That's the key verse, by the way, to the books of Acts right there, Acts 1.8. And, and, and so the idea here, though, is that the, the Jews lived in an occupied country. They lived under oppression. They, they, the, the, Roman, the Roman army, the, the Roman government were the occupiers of Jerusalem and the Jews were looking to, the, to their Messiah's coming. And they expected that their Messiah was going to be a conquering king. That was their hope. That was their expectation. And so when Jesus came, he did not meet the description of what they were expecting. They thought their Messiah was going to come and kick butt and take names and set up his kingdom and they were going to rule. They thought that's the way things were going to go. They didn't realize that Jesus was going to come as a suffering servant. Mark 10, I think it's 45, the key verse of the the gospel we're going through. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. They were not expecting that. As a matter of fact, turn to uh, now to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 kind of sums it up perfectly, shows what the, how the people regarded Jesus. We'll read the first six verses. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1, says, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the Jews were living under the constant occupation of Rome. They expected their Messiah to come as a conquering king, but that was never God's plan. It was never his plan. Jesus was to come to pay the penalty for sin. In his first coming, he was to come as a lowly, suffering servant to die for the sins of mankind. And so here's the deal, here's the point. Because the people... Because their plans, because their expectations was something different, when Jesus arrived, they missed him. They, they had an expectation, a hope, an, uh, uh, their plans were this way, and the Lord's plans were this way, and they couldn't reconcile the two, and they missed Jesus in the process. And if you notice, guys, for us, we're the same way. So many times we miss Jesus in the process when he shows up and he does something unexpected and we, and we, we're just, it, it tweaks us. It, it works us over and we're like, wait a minute. No, God was going to do this. This is what he was supposed to do. He wasn't supposed to do that. And that can't be God, right? Uh, I I was counseling a guy several years ago. He went through a, a train wreck situation. He had a business deal with a, with a par- business partner. His business partner totally betrayed him, completely screwed the guy over, stabbed him in the back, metaphorically speaking, stole his company from him, and he did it all you know, in a, in a way that this guy really basically had no recourse, and the guy was left just completely angry, bitter, resentful. As you might imagine, right? And, and so what I tried to encourage the man in is say, listen, you're, you've given your life to Christ. You are a godly man. And you've lived your life trying to walk in obedience to the Lord. I know you're not perfect, but you're, you're, you're a Christian who has surrendered his life to the Lordship of Christ. And so here's the deal. Do you think that just maybe, just maybe, all of these years, when your partner was ripping you off, and, and betraying you, ultimately, stealing your company, do you think that God knew that? Yeah, of course he knew that. And yet God allowed it to transpire in your life. Here's what I want you to look at. Here's what I want you to focus on. Do you think that perhaps God's using this in your life to maybe get you to be where he wants you to be? Do you think that's a possibility? Well, here's what tripped him up. He's like, well, wait a minute. How can God possibly be in the midst of this guy doing something so wrong? I mean, he broke, he broke the law to do this. I mean, God, that can't be God, right? Turn, uh, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 8. This is where I took him. This is where I take you. The whole idea here is, listen, uh, sometimes we miss God because his plans don't match our plans. His ways don't seem to be reconciled with what we think should be right. People there in the crowds thinking that Jesus was somebody else because he didn't fit the bill of who they thought the Messiah was supposed to be, so they missed him. Acts chapter 8, 
Verse 1 says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. Speaking of Stephen, who just previously, in the prior chapter, has been stoned to death uh, for having the audacity to preach the gospel. They stoned him to death. Saul was there consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, Samaria, Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Here's the point. God's will was for the Jews, those who would be saved and give their life over to to the Lordship of Christ. His will was that they would go out and be his ambassadors, be his witnesses, the Great Commission. Uh, Go into all the world, making disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which we just read, the key verse of the book of Acts. Jesus promised his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And all the way up here, all these wonderful things have been happening throughout the book of Acts, chapter 1, all the way up to chapter 8, and where, where had the church gone? The answer is it stayed in Jerusalem. They hadn't gone out. They're still in Jerusalem. God is doing an amazing thing. Thousands of people are getting saved. And, and just, man, Calvary Chapel, Jerusalem's going off the hook, man. This is cool, right? But God's like, no, you, you guys, I told you Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, you know, you need to be going. They weren't going. God allowed Saul to go in and persecute the church. And we don't even get through the end of the first verse of chapter 8 when Saul's there consenting to Stephen's death that what's the desired effect? They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria and the rest of the book of Acts talks about to the ends of the earth how the gospel goes out. God's will gets accomplished. And here's what I told this man that was struggling with this concept of his business partner screwing him over and how can that be God's will? It's what I tell you this morning. It's what we, we, we reconcile this idea of God's ways not being man's ways. It's just simply to say, look, God promises Romans 8.28 that in all things God works together for those that love him and are the called according to his purpose. That doesn't mean all things are good. That says that God uses all things for the good. That means he uses sinful men. He uses sinful decisions. He uses just horrible train wreck, wrong situations, wrong circumstances. That's not right. No, it's not right, but that doesn't limit God. God's not sitting up in heaven saying, oh no, he he messed with him and he stole his business. Now what am I going to do? God knows the end from the beginning. He knew that was going to happen. He's saying, I'm going to use that to get him where I want him to be. Now, this man, it's a happy ending, the guy that I'm, I'm counseling, his, his partner screwed him over and all of that. He's got his own business now. He wouldn't go back to his old business if you paid him. He's so much happier today than he was back when he was in partnership in this other, minute, or in this other business. And, and, and so the, the point is, is that God has the way he knows how to get us where we're at and to get us to where he wants us to be. And so I think it's so important for us when we're in a situation, when we're in a circumstance, when we, we, we realize, well, I think, I think maybe I've, I've missed God here. No, God wants us to be able to turn and to refocus and say, no, I trust in him. And even though God's ways aren't man's ways, I can trust in him. I'm reminded of that story 
uh, of, uh, of Samuel, the prophet, going uh, to anoint the future king of Israel. And, and he's told by God, go to the house of Jesse, anoint the future king of Israel. And as he goes there, uh, the text tells us that he marches out Eliab, his oldest son. This guy is a big, tall, strapping, you know, studly guy. And, and Samuel's first reaction is to say, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. And the Lord tells him, and he says to us, don't look at his outward appearance. Don't look at that man. Don't look at, at the way that he looks on the outside because man looks at the outside, but God, he looks at the heart. And see, the idea, guys, is that God's ways aren't our ways. And if we go expecting God to work in a certain way in our life, what's going to happen is we're going to miss him. We're going to miss Jesus working in our life just as surely as these pe- people missed Jesus as he showed up in their midst, their promised Messiah comes to them and they miss him because he doesn't look and act and do the things that they expected him to look and act and do. Well, not only do we see here in our text Herod, who missed Jesus because he feared men. Not only do we see the crowd who missed Jesus because they rejected God's plan. But finally, what I want us to focus on for the remainder of the message here is Herodias, who didn't know Jesus, who missed Jesus because she despised the truth. Herodias despised the truth. Now, look again, verse 17, back in Mark 6. It says, Herod himself sent and laid hold of John, bound him in the prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore, verse 19, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. Now, at this point, I think it would be helpful for you, to, for, for me to give you a little bit of family background, a little bit of family information here. Whenever, whenever I perform a funeral service, and I'll sit down with the family ahead of time, and I'll interview them to put the funeral service together, I always ask them, hey, is there a representative from the family who can be in charge. Because inevitably what happens on the day of the funeral, I have people come up to me and they say, hey, I, you know, I want to share this poem, or I, got this, I want to stand up and speak, or I, I want to sing a song, or whatever. And I don't know what the family dynamics are, you know, and, and it, it shouldn't be this way, but a funeral is always an occasion for the worst to come out in people. And so, you know, if I don't know what the family dynamics are and I get some gal come up saying, hey, I want to sing this song. It was just so special. I want to sing it. And I don't know, maybe she's, you know, the guy's mistress's daughter or something and she's going to get up and there's going to be, you know, knife and gun club going off. I don't know. So I always defer to the guy. Hey, you know the family dynamics. You, you tell me what's right and appropriate. And so what I want to explain to you kind of here is the family dynamics, What's going on in this family? Because, man, they make days of our lives look like a nursery rhyme. I'm telling you. And this is, it gets pretty complicated, so bear with me. But, okay, we're looking at Herod, Herod in this story. This is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. You guys remember Herod the Great, right? This is the guy that was ruling when Jesus was born. Herod the Great was the guy that killed all of the, the babies two-year-old and under trying to get to Jesus because his, his throne was threatened. He didn't want any other king coming to town. That, it was that guy. He was paranoid to say the least, Herod the Great. He was always fearful that somebody was going to take over his kingdom, that they were going to you know, usurp his authority and out him. And so he would strike first. Uh, he'd, he'd kill, he'd take out whatever he had to take out. Um, 
Because he was so paranoid, he killed his first wife, Doris, and their son because he thought they were in cahoots together to take over his throne. So he killed his wife, killed his own son. Then he married another woman, a gal by the name of Miriam. Miriam had two sons. He killed them all because he thought that they were going to try and take over his throne. Now, Miriam and he, in addition to having two sons, they had a daughter. Her name was Herodias, the Herodias in our story. He spared her. All right. It's, it, there was a saying during this time that it was safer to be one of Herod's pigs than to be his son because he would kill all of his sons. So here he is. He's, he, he marries another gal, another gal by the name of Miriam, Miriam number two. They have a son who they name Herod Philip. For whatever reason, they don't kill him. And Herod Philip moves to Rome. I'd move to Rome too if my dad was murderous and, and homicidal. And so Herod Philip doesn't get killed, moves to Rome. And so somewhere along the line, when he moves to Rome, yet he ends up hooking up with his niece, Herodias, and they get married. So Herod Philip goes to Rome, marries his niece, and they have a daughter, a gal by the name of Salome. Salome is the gal in our story who's dancing, you know, for, uh, for Herodias' husband. All right. Now, Herod the Great marries another gal after this. She had a couple of sons, one of which was a guy that was named Herod Antipas, the Herod of our story. Herod Antipas was the ruler over a portion of the kingdom of Herod the Great. Herod the Great eventually died. Herod Antipas got a portion of his father's kingdom. He ruled over that kingdom in the Galilee region. And so somewhere along the lines, Herod Antipas travels to Rome, meets up with his brother, Herod Philip, and steals Herod Philip's wife, Herodias, his niece, away from him. Now, remember, Herod Antipas is also Herodias' uncle, right? So he's, that's, their family tree goes straight up and down, <laughs> okay? Are you getting the picture that these people are immoral and living in debauchery? right? Who, who, what do they need? They need Jesus. That's exactly what John tries to do, by the way. John shows up in her life. Look at verse 19 again. Herodias held it against John and wanted to kill him, but she could not, for Herod feared John. Well, wait a minute. I'm sorry. Uh, back it up. Because John had said to Harris, it's, Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John had tried to witness to this guy and say, hey, listen, let me just tell you, your lifestyle is a little out of control. And, and, and it's not, this is not a lifestyle that you want to live if you want to gain eternal life and know the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So let me just kind of tell you that that, yeah, that whole sleeping with your niece, brother's wife kind of thing, bad idea, bad idea. Now, verse, verse 19, Herodias freaked out. She held it against, she wanted to kill him. Why? Well, because he had the audacity to tell her that what she was doing was wrong. How dare you call me a sinner? How dare you say, who, what gives you the right to, to say that about me? Now, does this sound familiar? Does this sound just a little bit maybe like the life that we're living today in modern America? Have you ever tried to, to go up to somebody, you have a brother in the Lord, a sister in the Lord, uh, and, and just share with them? 
hey, you know, I'm seeing some stuff in your life. Can, can, I, can I just encourage you? What's, what's the response normally that we get? How dare you say that about me? What gives you the right? We see this in, in, in a larger context uh, in our society in regards to all of the, the, the in, in saying of response that we get as Christians. And you realize as Christians in modern America, we're going through more and more persecution. Have you experienced that? More and more persecution, more and more people hating, despising, rejecting the people of God. Now, it's not you that they're rejecting. It's God's word that they're rejecting. It's Jesus who they're rejecting. In fact, Jesus said that, John 15, verses 18 through 21, Jesus said this. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, Jesus said, because they do not know him who sent me. And guys, it's been this way from the very beginning. An unbelieving world has sought to kill and to silence God's word at every turn. We see this on the news right now with with a very controversial subject, Proposition 8. Proposition 8, just huge people just come out of their skin, unglued, watch TV reporting someday just for laughs and giggles, open up your Bible to John chapter 15, verse 18 through 21, and read that while you watch a news coverage about Proposition 8. You never see something so graphic and dramatic than you see just right, there it is, right there. Now, let me tell you something. The whole idea here is the the intent to silence God's word. That's what Proposition 8 is all about. You thought Proposition 8 was about marriage? It has nothing to do with marriage. That's not, that's not the agenda. The agenda is to silence God's word. Here's what would have happened. This is not a, a message, by the way, about Prop 8, but it fits so perfectly into the text and the context of what we're talking about. I just, I just couldn't let it go. Here's what would have happened had Prop 8 passed. By the way, we're going to be here again. In the, the, the 2010 election, it'll probably be on the ballot again. They're, 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 this is not going away. Here's what happens when Proposition 8, it, had it passed, or if in the future, if it does pass. The children's school curriculum will be changed. Right off the bat. Soon as that law goes into effect, allowing homosexuals the right to marry, you're going to see the children's school curriculum change from kindergarten on teaching that homosexuality is a normal, accepted, standard societal relationship. And they will have this indoctrination taking place in the schools. The adoption policies in the state will change. Here's the impact to churches. Churches will be forced to perform, and if not perform, to at least allow same-sex couples to use their facilities to have their weddings. Churches will be forced to allow homosexuals to attend their marriage retreats, to uh, stay in any church-sponsored lodging at different events as a legal married couple. Pastors would be banned from teaching certain texts of the Bible. You say, oh no, that's not going to happen, Ted. It's already happened. 
These, this legislation is passed in Canada. And do you know in Canada right now, Focus on the Family has been banned from the radio because their programs are considered hate speech by the law? Pay attention in the, the news right now. The, the biggest hot, hot button issue is hate speech. And they're trying to get the legislation passed, which is going to effectively make it illegal for me to stand here in the pulpit and preach to you out of Romans chapter 1. To preach to you from Leviticus 18 or from Leviticus 20 or from Deuteronomy 22. I can go to jail technically for, for hate speech in some countries. In Sweden, there are pastors in jail as we speak because they preached from these texts. And so these, this is the direction that, that things would have gone had uh, Proposition 8 passed. And you need to understand that there is a deeper goal. The goal is the silencing of the church. It's not about marriage. It's not about, oh, they just need rights and equal protection. It has nothing to do with that. What it has to do is silencing God's word. I want you to take a look uh, at um, verse, uh, well, let's start in verse 22. We see Herodias' daughter enter the scene, a gal by the name of Salome. And it says that, uh, well, actually, let me back it up. Verse 21 says, an opportune day came. Note that word opportune. It's the word eukurios in the Greek, eukurios. And what it means literally is well-timed. In other words, this was a strategic event that took place. And notice what Herodias is doing. Her whole intent is to kill John the Baptist because he had the audacity to say that what they were doing was sinful and wrong. She wants to silence them. She looks for an opportune day. And that day came on Herod's birthday, verse 22, when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod. Now, this dance that they would do, it was a solo dance. And the solo dance was, was a sexual in nature dance. It was, it was designed for one purpose, to, to, uh, to provoke a, a, a sexual response to, to arouse somebody sexually. And, and normally it was performed by a prostitute. We get a glimpse into what kind of a woman Herodias is and that she lets her daughter Solome dance like this in front of her, what is it, uncle, father, whatever. She, she lets him dance in this way. You, you don't think that Salome or that Herodias didn't know that Herod was a dirty old man? Yes, she knew he was a dirty old man. She married him. She, you know, and she must have seen the longing glances that he'd already cast at his daughter. And now she sends him out there. She's doing it to lead him astray. She's strategically doing it to accomplish her objectives. And, and that's exactly what we're going through right now. Again, the homosexual community doing strategic work to, to, to influence and to change our modern culture. Now listen, there is an agenda. I'm not, this is not me being weird conspiracy theory guy. There is an agenda and you can map it out. It started with the psychological community. That was the first step in a, in a strategy that the homosexual community employed to change the way America operates and, and ultimately to silence the church. That's their objective. So it started with the, the psychological community. They got psychiatrists to relabel homosexuality as a condition instead of a disorder. Now, here's what you need to understand. They did it through lies and through, through doctored uh, data, which wasn't true. In the medical community, what they have found is that homosexual lifestyle is not good for, it's not good for you. It, it damages you. 
And, it, and actually, when you look at life, uh, life expectancies of those who are homosexual versus those who are heterosexual, the difference is like 20 years of, of, of an extension of life if you lead a heterosexual life on average. You live 20 years. That's a lot. Okay, it's not a healthy lifestyle. And there's a reason God says that this is this is an abomination. It's outside of his will. And so they they for years, they, they've categorized it as a disorder. This is not this is not normal. It's not healthy. Well, they got him to change it to a condition. Just so you know, the psych, the psychological community considers left handed a person who's left handed or a person who's right handed. That's a condition. That's exactly what they're trying to do. They're trying to get you to get you and me and everybody in America to go, okay, homosexuality is normal. It's just like if you're left-handed, just like if you're right-handed. That's, that's the, the goal they're going into. Their next step, simultaneously with that, they targeted the film, the television communities, all to condition us to, to think, you know what? Homosexuality is normal. That's their whole point. And the, the, the purpose is to, to brainwash America. And listen... That's not an extreme word. That's the truth, and I'm not making this stuff up. They have used and employed strategically techniques that were used in China to brainwash the residents of China. How do I know that? Well, there's a book. It's a fascinating book. It's called After the Ball, How America Will Conquer Its Fear and Hatred of Gays in the 90s, and it's written by a couple of guys, Marshall Kirk and Hunter Madsen. And listen to what the editors say about this book. By the way, this book was written 20 years ago. And uh, I'll come back to that. Listen to what his editors say. Quote, this book puts forth the very sophisticated and psychological persuasion and propaganda mass media techniques that we've all seen and been affected by over the years, but never understood what was happening. Marshall Kirk is a researcher in neuropsychiatry and his co-author Hunter Madsen received his doctorate in politics from Harvard in 1985 and is an expert on public persuasion tactics and social marketing. He has designed commercial advertising on Madison Avenue and served as a consultant to gay media campaigns across the country and appears frequently on national media as an, ex- as an advocate for gay rights. A founding, listen to this, a founding work of the modern homosexual movement, this book covers a wide discussion of tactics relating to the homosexual movement. As I said, this book was written 20 years ago, and if you take the book and you, you, you superimpose it on our society and what's happened over 20 years, it's been a strategic strategy followed to the letter, and it's worked perfectly, and there's only one step left, and then what do you think that step is? Silencing the church. That's the last step. And they're doing it right now with Proposition A. So here's what I want you to understand. This is what I want you to take away from this. We're talking about, uh, you know, knowing Jesus. We're called to know Jesus and we're called to make him known. That, 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 is, that is why we exist as a church. We need to know Jesus personally. We need to make him known. And we've talked about today three things that keep the world from knowing Jesus, that keep us from knowing Jesus. The first one is the fear of man. We are not called, God has not given us a spirit of fear folks. We're not to be fearful of man. The fear of man is a snare. God's called us to, to be bold and to serve him and, and to serve him no matter what, to be like John the Baptist and go to the king and say, that's not right. And notice they killed him. But where is John the Baptist now? He's in glory in the presence of the Lord and, and just has received his reward and his, his works, his words, they, they live longer than, than his physical body ever word will. We are, we are a vapor that's here for a while, just for a little while, and then we're gone. And then it's going to be an issue of where are we going to spend eternity? John did not 
did not deny the Lord, and he did not fear men. And so we're called not to fear man. We see another way that we don't know the Lord, that we, that we lose sight of the Lord, that, we, that we, don't, we miss his will in our life, is we reject his plan. When he works in a way that we don't recognize, and we say, well, that can't be God. No, we need to trust God when God's working in ways that we, we can't imagine. And here in this final issue, we know that people, we live in a world that hates the truth. And they want to silence God's word, which means they want to silence you. And you can't be silenced. Jesus asked the question. We said it in the beginning. We'll close it now. Matthew 16, 13 through 15. Who do men say that I, the son of man, am? They said to him, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he says, I say to you that you are Peter, little rock. And on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Listen, contrary to the Catholic Church who thinks that Jesus was saying, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter, and that Peter was the first pope, that's not what he was saying. Here's what Jesus was saying. We close with this point. Take this with you this week. Jesus said, Peter, I'm building my church on the confession that Jesus Christ is the Christ. Christ. He's the son of the living God. That confession of faith in Christ is what I'm building my church on. And we live in a generation, guys, right now, we 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 are one generation from Christianity being wiped off as off the face of the map. One generation away. It's our generation's responsibility to make sure that we do not be silent. We do not allow the word of God to be silenced. We live out our faith and we, we contend for the faith. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time in your word. We pray, Father, that you would help us to honor you, to walk in obedience with you. Lord, to, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust you when you promise that all these other things will be added unto us as well. Lord, I thank you for speaking to us today. I do pray, Lord, that you would, would help us, Lord, to, to, to truly, not to have a fear of men, but, Lord, to rightly fear you, and to be concerned with living our lives in such a way that we put you first in all things, that you become the compass by which we set our course not by popular opinion, not by what will make our spouses happy, Lord, but how you're calling us to live. Lord, I pray that you would help us in those times when you move and work in ways that we didn't expect, that you would give us the faith to trust you and to not, not to lean upon our own understanding and all our ways to acknowledge you and trust when you promise that you will direct our paths. And Lord, when we encounter those that want to suppress the truth, those who hate the truth of your word, those that would silence us, Lord, let us not be silenced. Don't let us, Lord, fall victim to those that want to strategize and and use a way to, to lead us astray. Lord, we want to bear fruit for your kingdom, fruit that will last. We want to go into the world and make disciples of you as you have commanded. So, Father, we pray for that. As we partake of communion today, Lord, we thank you for this, the bread that symbolizes your body broken for us the juice that symbolizes your blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we partake of it today, Lord, we do so obediently to you. As you say, we need to examine ourselves. We need to be rightly related to you. Lord, help us to do that. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.